You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Good morning. So glad to be with you all. My name is James Fields, and uh, I'm a huge fan of your pastor, Lyle. Uh, He's become not just a friend, but a brother, and uh, I'm thankful for him and his beautiful wife and family and their friendship to us. We have moved here from New Jersey about a year ago. Um, My oldest daughter is, uh, has, was born here in the state of Kentucky. Um, So I tell her she's a Southern belle through and through, uh, which is true. Um, And we're glad to be back here in the great state of Kentucky. Uh, Would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? We're going to continue in the gospel of Matthew, um, looking at um, verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. Hear the words of Matthew given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. And if you answer it for it by me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven? Or was it of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Or if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to, but later changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you and praise you for this great day you've given us. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is trustworthy and worthy of our full allegiance and our full worship. God, is preaching time, and I ask, as always, that you would hide me behind your cross. Let your people see you and not me. God, take the little that I have and make much of it. Glorify yourself so that someone may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus even now. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Matthew 21 begins the last week of Jesus' life. And everything at this point starts to slow down. Everything at this point starts to become more meaningful. And everything becomes even more intentional. And we witness Jesus' deliberate attempt to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. The one prophesied to be the Savior of the world. At this point in the story, Matthew has already presented several aspects of Jesus' authority. We have seen Jesus as our prophet, triumphantly coming in to the onslaught of the praise of thousands of people riding 
on a donkey. We have seen him thus far as our righteous and holy priest coming into the very temple and literally turning the tables upside down due to the exploitation of the people in the court of the Gentiles. And now today we see Jesus as our king continuing to teach in the temple courts. I love what David Platt said about this in his commentary. He says these words about what's going on. He says, Matthew has made clear to this point in his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that the entire Old Testament pointed forward to. He is a king of kings and a lord of lords, and his kingdom is eternal. Yet in light of these glorious truths, not everyone responded to such authority with submission. These audacious actions of Jesus leads us to consider the following three questions. And today, as we look at this text, we want to look at these three questions. The question of authority, verse 23. The question of origin, verse 24 through 27. And then lastly, the question of obedience, verses 28 through 32. Let's first look at verse 23 on the question of authority. It says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders, the chief priests are referred here as being the Sadducees, and the elders here are seen as being the Pharisees. They came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? They continue to ask, who gave you this authority? You see, from this passage until the end of chapter 23, Jesus is dealing with his, his opponents who are, being, who are described as being the self-righteous religious elites of the day. And this question of authority was very important for any Jew of this time because they hailed that they were the people of God and therefore they detested their Roman overlords. They submitted to them out of necessity, but they did not believe that the Romans had the right to govern them. You see, they believed rightly that they were God's own chosen people, and they believed that their authority was limited, that authority, excuse me, was limited to whom God had appointed in their lives, namely the high priest. So with that aspect of authority and that, that understanding of who Jesus is, they come forward with a twofold question about authority. Notice their questions. By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, what they're asking him is, for, for whose purpose are you doing these things? And then second question, who gave you this authority? In other words, what they're asking here is in whose name or who has given you permission to be God? It's a good reminder for us this morning, church, that unbelief, can be obstinate. Like a child who refuses to listen to his parents' instructions. Maybe you experienced that this morning on your way to church. Or even like an old dog who no longer listens to the voice of his master. Unbelief can be relenting, it can be unmerciful, and it can have the prideful attitude of I refuse to believe until you prove yourself to be true. 
I hear someone asking, what's so wrong with unbelief? What's so wrong about questioning Jesus? I love how Leon Morris describes this in his, in his commentary. He says these words. He says, the questioners doubtless thought of themselves as taking action from a position of strength. Jesus must, they would have reasoned, cite some source of authority. And since they reasoned temple authority, it could not be any authority that justified him in taking action in the way that he did in the place he used. Any human authority he claimed must necessarily be inferior. And if he claimed to have God's authority, they would be able to accuse him of blasphemy. You see, at the root, the religious leaders of the day were questioning Jesus' authority to do what he was doing. And they had a right to do this because at the time, the religious authorities, their world was being turned upside down. Does anybody know about that, COVID-19? Your world is turned upside down by Jesus, and things were not going as they wanted. Things were not going as they anticipated, and things were not going as they expected. And they wrongly associated Jesus' presence with God's displeasure. While ironically, and in reality, the opposite was true. Soldier in Town, may I offer a word of encouragement and also warning for us this morning. Don't allow your circumstances to define the character of God. I'm going to say that one more time. Don't allow your circumstances to define the character, the nature, and the goodness of God. I, I mean that in two extremes. I mean that if everything is going well in your life, if everything is good, if COVID-19 has not affected you at one iota, one bit at all, praise be God. <laughs> and if you're on the opposite extreme and COVID-19 has been horrible and it's just things that have been going on that you never anticipated, never thought would happen, they're all happening all at once, praise be to God. And here's why, here's why, here's why. The, the reason for that is because God's goodness and God's graciousness can't be determined by one's life experience. To insinuate that God is good because I am good or my life is good, it insinuates a God of defrail. It's a genie like God. It's a God you can control by your constant request and your eternal efforts of just maintaining good behavior before him. And God can't just be bad just because your life circumstances are bad, because that would insinuate a God of dissonance, and an apathetic God, a God who is ordinary and indifferent, a God who has no power, no control to affect your life here today. Let me tell you something, and I hope this is encouraging to you. God is good because he is good, amen? Not because your life is good. Not because things are going the way you want them to go. Not because you are in control. Because the things that you want in your life, that God is good because he's good. Period. Love how Psalm 105 puts it. It says, for the Lord is 
good and his loving devotion endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 136.1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. And listen to the wisdom of Psalm 145 verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his compassion rests on all he has made. You see, our God is the sovereign king in the universe, and, 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 and there's nothing in this world that he has not labeled as his own. Your life, your career, your marriage, your kids, your friend groups, your ministry, your bank account, this church, COVID-19, all is under the care and sovereignty of God, our king. And because of that, he has the prerogative to do whatever he so desires in your life. Now, even as I say that, I want to continue that by saying, because God has control of your life doesn't mean that you're out of control. You serve a God whose very essence and very being is that of goodness and love. You serve a God who loves you so much that he gave his son to die for the penalty that you deserve in your place. I don't know about you, but I would not want anyone else to be in control of my life except that good and loving and caring God. See, the religious leaders of the day had a problem. Jesus was entering their world yet they didn't want him to enter in. But as king of kings and lord of lords, we don't get to tell God what to do. (laughs) He is calling the shots. I found often in my life encouragement from a Proverbs, maybe you will too, Proverbs 20, 24. It's in a very obscure passage, but I wanna share it with you this morning. Hopefully maybe encourage you in your faith journey. It It simply says this, it says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? A man's steps are from the Lord. That means that that God has sovereignly knows every step you need to take. So how can anyone brag about what they are going to do or how their life is going to turn out? No one knows except for the Lord. Listen to the wisdom in Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Jeremiah 10, 23, it says it this way. It says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Notice with me the questions asked by these religious leaders. By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? And who gave you this authority, Jesus? Now, they ask these questions for two reasons. The first one is this, because they had already rejected Previous revelation from God. And that's what unbelief is about. Unbelief is not just about you not having evidence from God of his goodness. Unbelief actually stems from us denying the revelation that God has already provided so that we can feel comfortable in not believing. I had the great privilege and honor for the last seven years serving as a campus director and minister at Princeton University. And I've seen this directly 
head first with, with students and professors and, and the like. I, I, people used to always say, oh, you worked at Princeton? How great. I said, man, Princeton is like Satan's playground <laughs> in a lot of different ways. But yet, but yet, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the presence of God's people, even in a place like that, remains. And that speaks more to the goodness and the, and the favor and the presence and the reality of God more so than the reality of man. Amen? You see, they've already rejected previous revelation from God. Jesus had literally come in with thousands. He came in riding on a donkey, having thousands worship him through his triumphal entry. Jesus had just gone to the the temple and literally flipped over tables and had a whip whipping people, dispersing them from the court of the Gentiles. Jesus, after that, then healed, literally healed, physically healed a blind and a lame man. He then received praise from children in the temple that directed its insight from Psalm 8-2. And these men, the only way they could respond to all these things that were happening and they were seeing was this aspect of unbelief. And why did they not believe? Why why did they have a heart of unbelief? We find that in verses 25 and 26. In verses 25 and 26, it says these words. It says, um, did did John's baptism come from heaven? Was it of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considers him to be a prophet. So there's two reasons that the man asked this question. One is because they already rejected previous revelation from God. Number two, they had an unhealthy fear of man. See, these leaders had an unhealthy fear, which led them to question Jesus' authority in their life. And it led many people, even today, it leads many people to question Jesus in our lives too. It's a good reminder for us, church, that unbelief always stems from a denial of God's goodness and his truth. It's not always due to someone being ignorant of God's truth. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 1. He says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and the unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth says what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has, through what he has made. As a result, people are without an excuse. Notice with me that their question is not just a denial of authority, but their question is also a demand of its origin. Look with me in verses 24 and 25. Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. If you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven? Or was it of human origin? I love how Leon Morris puts it. He says it this way in his commentary. He says, He doubtless, he being Jesus, he doubtless could have cited his authority, but that would have led to endless arguments since his opponents would not have conceded 
that he had the authority he claimed. So Jesus countered with just one question of his own and promised to answer their two questions if they would first answer his. This is notice with me um, that Jesus was, although Jesus was not bound to answer their question, yet he responded to it nonetheless. And this is an aspect of what theologians call common grace. Common grace is God's common goodness expressed to all person, regardless of their belief in him or not. That, that God is good, that, that, that God doesn't say, you have to believe in me in order to breathe the, the air. You have to believe in me to have water or to have food. No, anyone in this world who's made in the image of God has intrinsic value before God as their creator because of God's common grace. God is good to those who believe, and he's also good to those who don't believe. And here we see that in Jesus responding to these men, responding to their demands, although he is the one, only one within the story with all authority. How gracious is our God? How gracious is he? If I was Jesus, thank God I'm not. But if I was Jesus, I would have just snapped my finger and turned them to frogs or something. But, but Jesus isn't just about winning arguments, and Jesus isn't just about demoralizing people. Jesus is about winning hearts and saving souls, even when those hearts and souls oppose him through unbelief. It's a good reminder for us again that unbelief can be obstinate, like a bitter spouse who's lost all hope in having a beautiful marriage due to the procrastination of overdue promises and forsaken acts of kindness. Unbelief can be obstinate, like the, the residue of food that refuses to come off one's favorite cooking utensil, even after being soaked in water overnight. I can say amen to that. My son just had a birthday party yesterday, and I'm soaking something right now. My favorite pot that needs get that rice and stuff out of there. For my young guys over here, I just ask you, like, like basketball, unbelief can be obstinate like James Harden dribbling 50 times before he takes a shot, right? Or like LeBron James not being unselfish and passing the ball. Unbelief can be unrelenting can be unmerciful and can have the prideful attitude of, I refuse to believe until you prove yourself to be true. Notice with me the dilemma for Jesus. Jesus has a dilemma and the Sanhedrin, whom the, the chief elders he's talking to, they both have dilemmas. Notice with me first Jesus' dilemma. If Jesus said his authority came from God, if he just said, hey, my authority came from God, then he would immediately be accused of blaspheme. Blaspheme, uh, being, uh, of, of, of blaspheming the name of God. And this would have been done prematurely because he was anticipating his death to happen later in that week. So Jesus can't say that. If Jesus said that he was acting on his own authority, the crowds would then be convinced that the Pharisees had the greater authority. And lastly, if Jesus said that he didn't know where his authority or where John's authority came from, then, then at that point he would be lying. 
But notice how Jesus answer, answers unbelief. Notice how Jesus answers them with a seemingly unrelated question that was used to reveal their heart motive. And their heart motive at this time was simply just to trap him. That's all they wanted to do. They just wanted to trap Jesus. And he asked them the simple question in verse 25. Listen to the simple question. That he asked them whether John's baptism was from heaven or from men. And Jesus knew that his question would uncover their hearts. And the reason he knew that, because God's questions, even throughout all of Scripture, always reveals our true heart intention. You remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were in that garden, they were tempted, and they ate that fruit. Remember that? That, that caused all the calamity that we're experiencing right now. I hope you remember that. Um, it, is, it, is the, it is the origin of all the brokenness that we've experienced. I tell my children all the time that God, God did not, this world is not how God created it to be. And we can't look at this world and say, God, it's your fault. It's your fault that COVID-19 is here, and it's your fault that sickness is here and death here. It's not God's fault. God created this world in beauty and in perfection. But due to man's desire for more than God, we have everything that we experience now. But do you remember, John, you remember that, that, the story, Genesis 3? You remember when they ate of that fruit? And do you remember what they did? They went hiding away. And do you remember the question that God asked them? He said, Adam, where are you? This is not a question of ignorance. It was a question of introspection. He wanted Adam to realize that he was no longer where God had left him. He wasn't where God had left him, and that was a problem because God had left him in perfection, and God had left him in a place of complete intimacy with him. Adam, where are you? This is not a question of location. It was a, it was a question of proximity. You're not close with me anymore, Adam. We're not, we're not homeboys anymore, Adam. There's something that has happened, Adam. Where are you? God, throughout Scripture, always knows how to ask the right questions to help us get to the place where we can examine our hearts and really come up with the issues that lie therein. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He asked them whether John's baptism was from men or, or from heaven or from man. Now, 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 we've noticed Jesus' dilemma. Notice the Sanhedrin's dilemma. They're also in a dilemma. What? Listen to their dilemma. If they say, man, John the Baptist, his authority and his, it came from heaven, if they claim that John's authority was from heaven, then they would be guilty of rejecting God since they denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus would have immediately asked them, why didn't they believe in him? If you believe in John and John preached about me, then why don't you believe in me? So I, we can't do that. No, 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 that's not. Okay, what's the other dilemma? If they say, okay, it's from men. If they claim that John's authority came from man, the people would turn against them. And they were afraid of the bold rejection of the common opinion that John was a great prophet of God, which was a huge, huge reality at that day, that everyone saw John as being truly a prophet from God. And to make such a statement would incite a riot, namely against themselves. They, they, they can't do that. They, they can't do that. So they, they do what they know what to do in verse 27. Notice how they respond. They respond, we don't know. We don't know. 
Now, now notice with me, it's not that they didn't want to believe. It's just that they didn't want to believe in Jesus. Growing up, I used to often go to my grandfather's house to hang out with him. I grew up in a single-parent home, uh, mom and grandmother who raised me. Um, so my uh, britches were a little big. I guess, I guess you can say that. My grandma used to say, your britches are a little big. If you, if you don't know what britches are, ask your parents after, after church. They can help you out with that one. Um, but she said, you know, your britches are a little too big. You know, you think you're the man in the house or whatever. Um, and I really wasn't, but I thought I was as a young teenage guy. You know, I'm the only male in the house or whatever. But when I went to my grandfather's house, my, my grandmother and my grandfather unfortunately divorced when I was younger. But when I go to my grandfather's house, it was like little Simba going before Mufasa, right? You have this great big man, booming voice, right? And all the things you probably do with him not around, you just don't do. And one of the things that he, oh, that, that was just a pet peeve for him was he would get so upset if I say, I don't know. I, I would say, he said, James, um, you want chili for dinner or do you want spaghetti? And if I said, I don't know, that was a no-no. Like you just, I, I, what, I, what I learned to say is, granddad, give me like five minutes. If I really didn't know, I said, okay, uh, let me think on that for like five minutes and I'll get right back to you. This, this aspect of I don't know was almost insulting to say before him in his presence. I love what one commentary says about this, using this phrase, I don't know. It says, it is the duty of every thinking man to know whether or not Christ is true. For a thinking man is to say, I don't know is unacceptable. A thinking man ought to know, for he has the capability to know. He is to think, determining the true from the false. If he fails to do this, he condemns himself. So here's the big question for us. We've seen the question of authority, and we've seen the question of origin. But here's the big question for how will Jesus respond to these people's ignorance? How, how will Jesus respond to, the, to their willful rejection of him as the Messiah of the world? We see that in verses 28 through 32. Despite the silence from the Sanhedrin, Jesus speaks and he graciously shares a story with them. He says this, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will. It's a good notice with me in this passage that helps us to see. Oh, excuse me. And then he goes on to say, they just said the first one. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Notice with me that sinners enter the kingdom of God before the religious elite of the day. See, Jesus gives a parable and the parable is pretty simple. Anybody that can understand um, this Greco-Roman kind of era would get and put, put the pieces together by Jesus' parable. And notice that Jesus isn't just talking to the religious elite. Remember, they interrupted him while he was teaching. So this wasn't just a teaching moment to put them on blast. This was an opportunity for everybody to understand about the kingdom of God 
and its nature. So Jesus teaches. He says, um, the, the, he, he, he helps us to understand that the man who's identified in this parable is not just a man, it's God. And the way we know it's God is because this man is the one who possessed the vineyard. And the vineyard is equivalent to the kingdom. And what Jesus is trying for us to understand is that God, we can only enter God's kingdom through the means that God provides. There's no way for you to enter a king's house apart from his knowledge and apart from him providing the means for you to do so. We enter God's kingdom by his rules and by his means only. This first son represents the non-religious or the worldly of the world. They were those who did not profess religion. They were those who were lost. They were those who desired to go their own way apart from God and apart from his church. And they're represented in two different people. One is the publicans or the tax collectors, and then also the prostitutes or the harlots. The tax collectors represented the rejected and the worldly-minded. They represented those who were more interested in money and the things of this world more so than God. And the harlots or the prostitutes represented the immoral. They represented the sensual of the world. They represented those who were more interested in pleasure than God. And then you have the second son. The second son represents the self-righteous. If you will, these are the people who grew up in religion, who was reared in religion. They profess religion and righteousness as the way a person should live justified before God. I love this because in this story, Jesus declared that man's idea of having a right relationship with God is off. He helps us to see that right religion and works-based righteousness are not enough to enter God's kingdom. Amen? It takes more. Sojourn, J-Town, listen to me, beloved of God. It, it takes more. It takes more than just having right religion. Right religion is not a sufficient means to satisfy God's righteous anger towards sin. Right doctrine or worship attendance every Sunday or right rituals, right professions, right ordinances, those things matter. Don't get me wrong. They matter, but they are not an end unto themselves. Works-based righteousness is not enough to atone for our sins. Having the right mor morality or the right virtue, having the right laws or having the right rules and regulations, having good works or having a strong commitment, these are all good things, but they won't put us in the right relationship with God. I think Robert Lowry from 1876 can speak to this about what will it take to have a right relationship with God. I love his famous hymn that he says. He says, asks this great question all the way in 1876. He says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is what we need. <laughs> it's what we depend upon. It's our only hope. 
It's a good reminder for us as a church that unbelief stems from a lack of obedience, not just a lack of evidence. And church, I want to encourage you today. I, I hope you feel encouraged. I want to encourage you to respond and obey to the truth that you already see and understand. In my church, we talk about it this way. We talk about ordinary obedience. Stop trying to do these great big things for God. Stop stop trying to have these great, great big plans for God. You know how you have great plans for God? By doing small things for God. You know how you do great things for God? By living for him every single day. Denying yourself, uh, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him every single day of your life. It's not, we, we focus so much on the big things and the grandeur and doing the wonderful, and God is focused on the small. How, how do you respond to your wife today? Did you, do you, are you loving your kids the right way? I, I know your neighbor has been getting on your nerves, and I know they don't, they don't deserve your forgiveness, but, but have you given them that forgiveness? Have you shown love to, G, to, to your neighbor that way? What ways can you encourage your husband? He's going through a lot right now. How about, how, about your, how about your grandparents? Have you called them to, to reach out to them? How are you being a good friend during COVID? Are, are, you, are you sharing the, the hope and the faith that you have in Jesus with, with your friend who needs to hear it? Ordinary obedience is how we grow as Christians. It's not the great things. God builds us one brick at a time. And as we do that one act of obedience, it gives us that one brick, and we slowly start to build that wall. We'll slowly start to build that character. We, start, we slowly start to build that, that, that willingness to obey. My prayer for you is the same I have for my church, is that God's delighting in God and obeying God will be a delight and not a burden. Because when you obey God in the small things, and when you can delight in the small things, it becomes a habit. God, wow. <laughs> Man, I really, I really could have said some, some choice words to my wife this morning, but thank you for holding my tongue. And instead of saying those words, thank you for calling me to pray for her. <laughs> that was hard. But guess what? The next time that happens, it'll be a little easier because you did it right the first time. <laughs> and you can build upon that. Ordinary obedience. That's what God calls us to, the small things, the, the, the small things that no one else sees, no one else knows. Ordinary obedience. It's the thing that God calls us to. I used to tell my Princeton's kids all the time about David. I said, hey, they love that story about David and how David killed Goliath. Excuse my children, not the Princeton kids, excuse my children. They love that story about David killing Goliath. I said, you know what, guys? I said, you know, you know when David killed Goliath? They said, yeah, when he saw him in that field and he got that, that, that sling and the five stones and he hit him in the forehead. I said, no, no. I said, David killed Goliath when he was a shepherd boy on the backfield. <laughs> David killed Goliath when he was killing lions and bears. He killed Goliath when, when, when no one knew he was the, 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 the last son of, of Jesse. Nobody cared for him. He wasn't even in the lineup when, when Samuel came to anoint the next king. Jesse didn't even have it in his mind to bring David out. He was still tending sheep. You know when David killed Goliath is he killed Goliath in the, in the, in the quietness and obscurity when no one was looking and yet he was still remaining to be faithful. He was faithful to those little sheep that God had given them, that any time a lion or bear would approach his face towards those sheep, he would kill them and smite them. And every lion and every bear that David killed gave him greater and greater confidence, not just in himself, but in the God Almighty. So that when he came to Goliath, who was this big, monstrous man, 
He said, listen, I've handled you before. <laughs> I've done this before. You, you may be big. You may be tall. You may be a man. I've killed animals. You may, but, but the same way that God protected me there is the same way that God's going to protect me now. Amen. I love movies, and there's a movie, Skeen, tell me, if, if you raise your hand if you've ever seen this movie before. It's an old movie. Maybe, anybody seen this movie? Name, what, what, somebody tell me, what's the name of this movie? Fugit, yeah, oh, we got, okay, there we go, A Few Good Men, yeah. And it's a great movie with this young lawyer who's Jack Nicholson, if you don't know who he is. Feel free to Google him later if you don't know who he is. Great, great actor. Lakers fan, by the way. He's a LeBron fan. Jack Nicholson played this role as, as Colonel Jessup in this young, hotshot lawyer, officer, played by Tom Cruise, this getting him to respond to a question on an, did he initiate what they call at the time Code Red. And Tom Cruise is asking him, did you initiate a Code Red? Tell me the truth. I want the truth. I want the truth. And, and what was Jack Nicholson's famous reply? Oh, my. You got movies. But I, I like it here, Lyle. You may, you may take me a while to get me away. They, they like movies like I do. Okay. Yeah, you can't handle the truth. Right? In this passage, in the last couple of verses, we see three evidence of truth that God wants us to have. One is this. He says that John was righteous. He reminds them that John came in the way of righteousness. He came in the very righteousness that these religious elitists say that they had and they live by. He's saying, listen, if you, if, you want to, if you really want to see righteousness, look to John and look to whom John spoke to, which namely was him. The next truth that we see is found in verse 32, that sinners believed John's witness, that what John talked about and how John lived not only affected him, but it affected the publicans and the harlots because they actually believed in him. They actually came into saving knowledge of Jesus because of John. And then lastly, we see that, the, that Sanhedrin saw this evidence, but yet they rejected it. They rejected it in this way. It's a good reminder for us as we close that our belief is secured in a person. Amen. Our belief is secured in a person, not in a promise, not in a protocol, not even in a procedure. Our belief is secured in a person, and that person's name is Jesus. Love what John Piper says about this. He says, salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you that you are a good and righteous king. You are the God who pursues us in our waywardness. You are the God who gives us grace when we don't deserve it. You are the God who deserves our praise and worship regardless of life circumstance or condition. Help us, Lord, to respond in this way. We thank you for this time of preaching, and I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice or looking online who does not know you or who may be living in a state of unbelief, that you would help them to no longer reject the evidence 
that you have provided, not just today, but even before today. We ask, Father, that you, God, would save for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, for those who, us who do believe, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about you. Forgive us, Father, when we think that our, our good works make you to be good to us. But God, forgive us, Lord, when we allow the circumstances of life, the hardships of life to call you not good or not worthy of our praise. God, you are good because you are good. You are the essence of goodness. You are the origin of beauty. And we praise you and thank you in every way. Grow us in this way, Lord, as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we'll take communion together. I believe the elements are right there on your seat. So if you want to take those, we'll, we'll go ahead and partake of this ancient meal. The bread and wine that we're about to partake of speaks to the reality of God being our all-sufficient king. He alone has fully atoned and pardoned our sins, and he alone has given up himself, up himself as a sacrifice, as a peace offering for us. Matthew 26 says these words. It says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup and get, after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink, uh, eat, excuse me. He said, uh, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat and drink together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink this cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus concluded with these words. He says, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it from anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing and a hearing to his word. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.